Well, if you have your Bible or your smartphone, um, turn to Psalm 2, and that's there in the worship guide also. We are taking the month of January to hang out in the Psalms. Last, last week we did Psalm 1, and um, now we're doing Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and 2, are they go together. They're partners. Uh, Psalm 1, we talked about last week, it's sort of like the introduction or the preface to the whole book. And Psalm 2 kind of joins Psalm 1 in that. You ever have one of those books that you open it up and it's like, preface, and then it's, you like read that and it's like, forward. You read that and it's like, introduction. Like, when are we going to get to the first chapter? Well, that's kind of like this. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are both introductory material for the whole book. And like any, any great book, especially nonfiction ones, um, kind of the secret to, the, to getting the big idea of the book quickly is to really study the introduction. Usually authors give away the whole message of the book somewhere in the introduction. And in Psalm 1 and 2 together, we really get the message of the whole Psalms, uh, kind of in a Cliff's Notes introductory form. So that's what we're doing. Um, just a, by way of reminder, the big idea of Psalm 1 was that there's two ways to live, the righteous way and the wicked way. And the righteous way leads to flourishing, and the wicked way leads to total destruction. And uh, the way you know which way you're on is whose voice you follow. The righteous way we follow the voice of God is given uh, in his word, and the wicked way we just follow the voice of the crowd. That was Psalm 1, remember? Okay, now Psalm 2. Let's read it, and then we'll pray, and then I'll show you some stuff. Okay, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... Oh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Yes, this no worship guide thing has totally thrown me off. Let's start over. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let you, let's pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word in this psalm. God, I pray that right now you would illuminate this by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would see you 
in your glory as revealed in Jesus Christ. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, Psalm 2. Uh, the big idea of Psalm 2 has to do with God's kingdom agenda. Now, that's a phrase that I've borrowed. Uh, God's kingdom, we've heard of God's kingdom. Uh, but sometimes when we talk about God's kingdom, it seems like some kind of like ethereal, far away, hard to imagine thing. Um, that's natural for us as human beings. But one of my favorite preachers, somebody I like to listen to, uh, Dr. Tony Evans. Some of you guys have heard me talk about Tony Evans before. He's in a totally different tradition than, our, than we are. Uh, he's very different than, than, his preaching is very different than mine. But I like to listen to people who are different than me. And I love listening to Tony Evans. Well, Tony Evans coined this phrase, kingdom agenda. And the idea of God's kingdom agenda is that it is... Uh, God's kingdom being manifested and worked out in the actual world. It's God taking the action to make his kingdom happen here. Uh, Tony says, the kingdom agenda is the visible manifestation of the comprehensive rule of God over every area of life. And I love that because that's what God is doing. His kingdom doesn't just exist out there somewhere in his divine imagination. It's not just a promise. He's actually making it happen in our world. He is transforming our world, transforming people, transforming hearts. And that has effect on relationships and places that we live. God has a kingdom agenda. He's doing something, and it's being actualized in our world. Well, Psalm 2 is about—well, it's, it's a picture— it's a poem. It's a poetic image of God's kingdom agenda. What does it look like when God works his kingdom out in the world with real people and real relationships and real places in real time? What does that look like? Well, Psalm 2 is a picture of that. Now, the thing about Psalm 2 that's a little fun and a little tricky is that it's not just a regular poetic picture. It's a multi-stable perception image of God's kingdom agenda. And I know those are big words, multi-stable perception image. You can try to say that if you want. It's a fun thing to say, multi-stable perception image. Now, those of you who get our weekly email, uh, every week I send out a little devotional. And this week we talked about multi-stable perception images. And I, I brought one just to help us remember because Understanding how multi-stable perception images work help us to understand Psalm 2, because that's what Psalm 2 is. So, uh, some of you saw this in the email, and for those of you on Zoom, I'm going to try to keep it real still. Um, and many of you have seen this before. It's called Reuben's Vase, and uh, it's a multi-stable perception image. What that means is, is that it's one image with two visible forms. It's multi-stable. You look at this, and there's, I'm not holding up two images. I'm holding up one. But there's two completely different forms in this. There's a dark form. Why am I holding it like this? I can hold it like this, right? There's a dark form, and it's a picture of a vase, right? 
but there's also a light form. If you focus on the white negative space, there's a shift that happens somewhere deep in our psyche. People who know more about psychology than me uh, talk about this, and it has a term. It's called a gestalt switch. Gestalt is a German word for form. So we look at this. Some people see a vase. Some people see two faces. But if you look long enough, at least for most of us, somewhere deep in our brain, deep in our uh, psychology, something happens called a gestalt switch, and all of a sudden we can see the other image, right? They say not a lot of people can see both at the same time. I don't know how true that is because I think maybe it's because many of us have looked at this a whole lot. Uh, but, you know, two forms, one image. This is how Psalm 2 works. This is when we read Psalm 2, it should be like looking at this. There's a dark form in the psalm that looks like one thing. And then there's a light form in the psalm that looks like something else. Uh, let's go through those together. So, the dark form. The dark form, the dark image that Psalm 2 paints of God's kingdom agenda is that God's kingdom agenda is terror. God working his purposes out in the world with real people, real places, real relationships is terror. It's frightening. It's unnerving. Look at verse 2. We'll start there and we'll read for a little while. It says that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So there's people and leaders in the world that God to them is, he's binding, he's constricting, and they want to fight for freedom. They gather together, let's cast away God's bonds. But then look at God's reaction to this. This is pretty dark. God sits in the heavens and he laughs. And he holds them in derision. Derision means contemptuous ridicule. And God speaks to them in his wrath. He terrifies them in fury. That's a dark image. That's not a picture um, of God that many of us are comfortable with. It's a little strange in the Bible to open it up and when we're, you know, the reason we're here is we're convinced that God is good. And we read this, and here's a picture of God that comes from his inspired word, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's trustworthy and true and bet your life on it. And here's a picture of God that for the people who think that he is constricting and too narrow and doesn't work for them, he sits, he sits back and laughs in ridicule. And he speaks to them in wrath and he terrifies them. That's dark. Skip down to verse 10. It says, O therefore, kings, be wise, and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. The Son, or the anointed, as it talks about in this psalm, are references to King David. This psalm was written as a coronation psalm. It was written for the 
ceremony where uh, David and then where David's uh, the, his, the dynasty, David's sons, like Solomon, who would become king when they were crowned. And this psalm was read out loud at their coronation. And so the message of this psalm is tied in with the fact that there is a king in Israel who's ruling supposedly on God's behalf. And here, in these verses, when we, when we look at the way the psalmist talks about the reality that God has a king in Israel, David, whether it be David or Solomon or Rehoboam or go on the list of kings, um, that, that that king, as God's representative, uh, rules, as it says in one of these verses, it says he rules with a rod of iron, and the kings of the earth should tremble at him. This is a picture of God crushing his enemies through his king. It's dark. Um, a little something about David. And one of the ways that this dark image of God working through his king is, is painted this way. After the exodus, when the people came out of slavery from Egypt, they went into the wilderness and they went to Mount Sinai and they met with God. God gave them his law. Uh, told them all about the things he cares about, and this is how you live well, this is how you please me, this is what relationship with me is like. Then the people wandered for 40 years in the desert while God worked on their hearts and, and helped them to know that he was good. And then finally when they were ready, they went into the promised land, and God told them when they go into the promised land to make sure uh, the, the, uh, the, the nations who lived there, the people groups that didn't believe in Israel's God, that were hostile to Israel's God. The, the, the word there actually in Hebrew when it talks about these, these other nations that lived in the promised land is the Hebrew word is goim. We translate it nations or um, sometimes Gentiles um, or uh, the heathen. It's actually the, the word in the first verse of this psalm. Why do the nations, why do the goim rage? Well, God told the people, go into the promised land, and I want you to drive out, or in some cases, wipe out the goim. Because you can't live alongside them. You're, you are committed to me, and they are not committed to me. So you need to go in and move, drive them out or, or wipe them out. Now, the people went in, and they wiped out, and they drove out some of the goim, but not all of them. And for about two or three hundred years, the people of Israel lived alongside various going people groups. And we can read in the book of Judges, this was a time when there was no king in Israel to lead them on the righteous path, like we talked about in Psalm 1. And what happened was they would have a, a few years of, hey, we're going to follow God, we, we love God, we're the people of Israel, you know, he brought us out of Egypt. And then they would get mixed up with their going neighbors, and they would start worshiping idols, and, and everything would go to trash. <laughs> and things got really bad until God rose up a, a, you know, a judge or a leader, and then it would get better for a while. And then, but eventually, over time, the nation, the people of Israel, drifted into national, political, and spiritual chaos. And it all came down to the fact that the going the hard-hearted, unbelieving people groups that stood against the Lord lived in the land. 
Now the goyim were never actually drive, driven out until a strong king named King David rose up to lead Israel in fighting the going. At that time, the most powerful group was the Philistines and defeating them. And it wasn't until David's reign that the 12 tribes of Israel were actually really united, where they saw themselves, at least since the time of the Exodus, where they viewed themselves as one people together. And so David, being a king that in his kingdom, it was supposed to be like a theocratic kingdom. It was supposed to be God ruling through David. And David, we read, was a man after God's own heart. And David's desire as king, when the people looked at him, what they were looking for was for David to lead them, not just politically, not just spiritually, but politically, spiritually together. And a big part of that was standing strong against those who opposed him. So here in this psalm, we see this dark form, this poetic image of David and David's God as big and scary. And that the people who say, uh, we, we're not for him, we need to cast off his bonds, well, they should fear and they should tremble because God's wrath is against them. And that's the dark form of this psalm. Now, David was apparently unbeatable because fighting against David was fighting against God. And I just want to make a note here. I just want to, because it's good for us to remember that the Goim were human beings. Every human being is made in God's image. God cares for all people. I just want to note here that I understand. I understand what it would be like to be angry and to fight against a king who claimed to rule on God's behalf and who claimed to be unbeatable. We don't like unbeatable people and groups. This is one reason why a lot of people don't like the Golden State Warriors. We don't like, that's, that's, that's frustrating for us. And, and part of my heart goes out to the going. I understand why they would fight. But they found God, the God that they were fighting against, to be terror. Okay, that's the dark image. Now, there's, that's a dark form. Now, there's a light form in the image of Psalm 2. It's totally different. Look with me at verse 1. The psalm starts out, Why do the nations, why do the going, why do they rage? And the people's plot in vain. Now, this rhetorical question that opens the psalm is significant because it sets the tone for the light form in the psalm. Why? To the psalmist, it doesn't make any sense why the going, the people who would stand against God and God's man David, why they would continue to fight, why they would continue to plan against God and the king. It's in vain. They can't beat him. And this rhetorical question reflects a sense of security in the psalmist. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Skip down to verse 6. God says, As for me, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The king is there because God put him there. He's immovable. Look at the next verse. The psalmist says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations the going, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces with a potter's vessel. Now this part of the psalm uh, is an allusion to 2 Samuel 7 that we read earlier. David didn't just become the king, the king of Israel who was supposed to be like, who was uh, like God's representative in the land. He didn't become that just because he was smart or savvy or worked really hard. No, he became the good, righteous man after God's own heart, king of Israel, because God had made him that. God had found him when he was a shepherd boy. God had chosen him. God had prepared him for the task. God had worked with David over years of growing into leadership, and then God had placed him on his throne. And we read uh, uh, earlier in the liturgy, we read about how God, once David had the throne, God came to him through Nathan the prophet, and he told him, David, well, let's just look at it. He told him, David, He said, I know you have this idea of building me a house. You're not going to build me a house. I'm building you a house. That's God saying, David, I'm the one who establishes you. And he goes on to say, verse 8, uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. David, you were a shepherd. You were, you were nobody. I'm the one who made you king. And I've been with you wherever you have gone to cut off your enemies before you, and I will make your name great. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. David, I'm going to make you a great king. I'm going to make you a famous king. Not because you earned it, but because I'm going to do it. God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Oh, so it was God who drove out the Goim. It wasn't just David's own military genius goes on and God says, violent men shall afflict the people no more as formerly. Oh, so it was God working through David to protect the people from the going that were hostile. So when David killed the giant Goliath, that was God doing that. Yeah, okay. God goes on to say uh, in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and all establish his kingdom. Oh, so David, that 14 generations of David's dynasty, that, that wasn't because David was just a great guy. That was because God promised that David's offspring would rule just as he had. Okay, I'm seeing it. It goes on to say that when, uh, verse 14, I will be to him a father, David's offspring, and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I'll, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Oh, so the 14 generations that came after David, the rulers, the Davidic dynasty that protected the land, that drove out the going, that did all these great things. It wasn't because they were great people. It was because God had put his mark on them. So, we're, say, imagine we're living in Israel during David's reign or Solomon's reign or Rehoboam's reign and all these Davidic kings. And we experience 
the, the goim, the, the, the nations that don't know God, coming to attack us, to try to take the land back, to try to tell us that following God is narrow or oppressive or restrictive. We don't have to be afraid because the king that God has put here to protect us, that king was established by God himself. This is a beautifully light picture. So the dark form in Psalm 2 is that God's kingdom agenda, God working out his kingdom in the world, is terror. And that's what it looks like to the going, to the people who don't know and love and trust God. But to God's people, to the people who know him and love him and trust him and have pledged allegiance to the king, it looks like security. So the dark form in this psalm is the kingdom agenda is terror. The light form is that God's kingdom agenda is security. And when we read Psalm 2, we read about God working through his anointed one, his king, to execute judgment on the nations, to protect the people, to secure the land. And some of us would read it, and it's horrifying. And some of us, us being the human race, would read it, and it's beautiful. One poem, one image, two forms. Now, like in a multi-stable perception image, whichever form you're looking at is determined by something deep in your brain. Well, in this multi-stable perception poem, whichever form you see, whichever God you see, the terrifying God or the beautiful God that gives you security, depends on something deep in your heart. Do you see it? And this is the poetic genius of Psalm 2. No matter how scary it gets out there, guys, you're protected. Or, no matter how much you think God is bad for the world, you're not going to win. We see one or the other. Now, Psalm 2 doesn't just leave us with one or the other form. At the end, we see this call to a gestalt switch. The psalmist calls us to, if we're seeing the dark, to go through a switch and see the light. It says, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Either he's angry and you're perishing in the way because his wrath is quickly kindled, or you're blessed because you're taking refuge in him. What's the difference between the two? Whether or not you're willing to kiss the son, the king. Now that kiss, that's not necessarily go up and smack him on the mouth. Uh, but that's like, like in the old days when, when someone would pledge allegiance to a king or swear an oath to a king, they would maybe get down and kiss the king's feet or maybe kiss the king's, or even the queen sometimes, kiss the, kiss the ring. That's what it's saying. Pay homage. Submit to the Son. So, Psalm 2, two forms. Uh, one or the other. Depends on what's going on in your heart. And the thing that we're looking for to go on in your heart is homage giving to the Son. Okay, Charlie, what do we do with this? How do you... Uh, that's beautiful for ancient Israel. What does this have to do with us today? Well... Uh, from the first verse of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is identified as the heir to David's throne. 
He's identified as the son of David, the new David. And for those of us been around church for a while, that's no secret. Many of us were trained early on that when we see something in the Old Testament about David, that's, that's the shadow, that's the type. And then when we read about Jesus in the New Testament, that's the fulfillment, that's the actualization. So when we read Psalm 2, when it talks about the anointed or the son, it's not just talking about David. It's talking about Jesus. That's really good news because David wasn't always a good guy. He did some wonderful things. He did some terrible things. But God set his anointing on him as a type, as a foretaste, as a shadow, so that we would understand when Jesus finally came, the son of David, what Jesus' role was in the world. Now, we read Psalm 2, and the anointed one, the king, that we're supposed to kiss in order to switch between the dark to the light. He's the new David. So that means, according to Psalm 2, that Jesus is the one that God has anointed to execute judgment in the world. Jesus is the one who terrifies God's enemies with God's fury. Jesus is the one that protects God's people from those who would oppose God's kingdom agenda. And Jesus is the one who pours out beautiful blessing on those who submit to him. Okay? So what does this have to do with us, Charlie? Thank you for the theological explanation. Well, two points of application. First, um, for those of us that look to Jesus and we see our Lord and our Savior, we see the one we worship, the one we love, the one we're holding to, we can be assured uh, that when we take refuge in God by looking to Jesus, that we're blessed and that we're okay. Now, folks, this is really important for the kind of times that we live in. We live in a time where what we're doing here is not part of the dominant culture. We live in a time where many people, many very nice people who want good things for the world that we should respect and that are creating in God's image, many nice people think that what we're doing here is not good for the world. In fact, it's bad for the world. It's narrow. It's oppressive. And many of us here, whether it's at school or it's at work or it's on social media or it's with our friends, we hear the voices and the message of people who think that what we're doing here, trying to follow God and worship Jesus and live like his word is trustworthy and true, that that's a, that that's a bad, bad thing. And for many of us, that makes us very nervous. Many of us struggle with fear that we're going to be rooted out or that we're going to be attacked, or that the government's going to shut us down, or they're going to take away our freedom, or maybe even in our own denomination, our own tradition, people who are hostile to trusting God's word are going to creep in and take it over. Well, folks, according to Psalm 2, while some of those things might be real at one time or another, none of those things are anything that we should be afraid of. Because God is ruling in his kingdom through his son with a rod of iron. Now, when it says a rod of iron, that doesn't mean an iron stick to beat people with. That means uh, like the king's scepter, the symbol of his authority. 
And iron at the time this was written was the strongest metal. So when it says that the anointed son rules with a rod of iron, what it's saying is that Jesus is actually in charge right now with undefeatable authority. He cannot be pushed aside. His church cannot be shut down. His people cannot be silenced no matter what happens. So we don't have to be afraid. And we can actually listen with humility to the people who might oppose us. Do you know that when we as the church act out in, out of our fears, out of defensiveness, that very often it hurts people? You know, when we, maybe if you're in a, in a, with a sibling or with a spouse or uh, a close friend, when, when we get in fights with each other and we get defensive, very often we say nasty things, right? Well, do you know that so many people who are afraid of the church or who have been a part of the church and left, the reason is because they've been hurt at some point by a Christian who is acting out of fear towards them? Not every time, but very often. God calls us not to be afraid. The king is on the throne. He rules with a rod of iron. So that's application one. Application two. If you're one of those people that you see the dark form, you read this and you go, Charlie, I can't unsee this wrathful, furious God making war to crush the world. I just, it doesn't matter how much you talk about the light. I just can't wrap my head around this. I don't like it. It's not good. I don't get it. Why do you Christians, or why do we Christians uh, give our allegiance to a God who exercises wrath? That has to be wrong. I thought God was love. You guys feel that? Well, there's a secret here. There's a key to interpreting this that we haven't mentioned yet, and I'll mention it here at the close. If that's you, you can't unsee the dark, that I'd invite you, if you're not ready to kiss the sun yet, you're not ready to pledge allegiance to Jesus, I'd, I'd invite you to consider the battlefield upon which he went out to crush the nations. This psalm tells the story of God's anointed king going out to crush the going, to be the instrument of God's wrath, right? Well, the, the secret is um, that's already been done. The king has already gone out to war to crush his enemies. And the battlefield on which he fought that battle to pour out the wrath of God was the battlefield of the cross of Calvary. The beauty of this psalm and the gestalt switch in this psalm is that the anointed king, who's the instrument to go pour out God's wrath on God's enemies, came and became a receptacle to take in and to receive God's wrath as the substitute for God's people. Because it's not just the goim who live in enmity against God. It's every single human being. So Jesus, God's anointed, came to be the instrument of God's judgment. And God's judgment poured out in the world looks like the cross of Christ. And when he hung on the cross, he received the wrath of God so that anyone who would take refuge in him would be shielded. 
So the way that our king makes war is by going and laying his own life down for the life of the world. So if you read this psalm and you can't unsee the dark, how do you believe in a wrathful God? Consider Jesus, the image of God himself. What does the wrath of God look like? What does the rod of iron look like crushing the nations? It looks like him who was crushed so that we may live. That's the beauty of it. This is the message of the Christian gospel. Jesus Christ is God's king in the world. And he took the throne by way of his death and resurrection. And to reject him is to willfully choose the terror of the dark. But to accept him is to embrace, embrace the security of the light. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.